Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The American composer Scott Joplin is often described as the king of ragtime, though his contributions to music go far beyond that style. Joplin was a classically trained pianist, a composer of opera and concert music, whose ambitions were denied during his life in the early 20th century. Pianist Lara Downs honors Joplin as an innovator who merged traditions and histories. Later this hour, we'll discuss her recent album, Reflections, Scott Joplin Reconsidered. Plus, City Lights producer Summer Evans takes us to the Queen's Ball, a Bridgerton-themed immersive experience at Pullman Yards. First, the intense heat of August is matched by the intensity of drama in August Osage County. The Pulitzer and Tony Award-winning play by Tracy Letts opens Wednesday, August 17th at Stage Door Theater in Dunwoody. Forrest Attaway is the director. He joins me now with executive producer Michelle Neal, Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. It's great to be here. And I, this is an absolute pleasure for me, Lois. I, I've been listening to you for so many years, so I'm so excited to be here. Forrest, dysfunctional family is a phrase we often hear. Some people even joke that together those words are redundant. <laughs> Will you introduce us to this family in a synopsis of the play? Yeah, the Weston family is a family that suffers from generational trauma that has been literally bled down to them from patriarch to patriarch to matriarch to matriarch. The thing about this dysfunctional family, sometimes you don't realize what kind of damage that you are doing until the damage is far too gone. So you have this successful, at one time very successful patriarch who is 
What is the word I'm looking for, Michelle? Made some bad choices. <laughs> <laughs> some bad choices. Made some very poor choices, and not just his marriage, but the raising of his children. Correct. And then, of course, their parents weren't any finer. Uh, like all this stuff reveals itself in the actual architecture of the play. So I'm kind of like, kind of gun shy. I don't want to give like too much away. Well, what I can tell you, I play Maddie Faye and in the play and. Her character specifically is a pivotal character to the play. Of course, you don't find out until the very end, but in my preparation for the role, I really had to kind of dig in deep to her history and Violet's history and how that affected decisions that she made that then has this roll on effect that kind of creates, I suppose, the precipice or the, the pinnacle of the the drama and the play. I think um, the location of the story, being in this northern part of Oklahoma, when you talk about, again, this generational trauma, you know, uh, dealing with like going back decades and decades and decades mm -hmm. from uh, the Dust Bowl to, you know, the collapse of the economy to this all, this play takes place in 2007. If you remember 2007 or oh, eight, yes. you know, where our nation was. So, more to that point is this play feels just as relevant now as it did back then. It certainly does coming out of, of COVID and the pandemic where we were all so isolated from one another. And, you know, it's just by the nature of things, especially in the, my group, my network, my friends, because I'm a recovering alcoholic myself, I, you know, that the amount of alcoholism and drug addiction has escalated exponentially um, today at coming out of COVID. And there are so many themes in this play that are, are relevant through isolation, addiction, mental health, family trauma, that just felt so appropriate for this moment in time. August Osage County is dark, and yet there are also very funny moments. How does the playwright Tracy Letts succeed in adding humor within this serious, often grim plot. Well, I, I believe it's a necessity. I, I find the heavier things are when you juxtapose it with with the lighter moments. It makes those lighter moments so much more uh, important to you. And the way that Letts has, I mean, this is just a beautifully written script. It literally is a masterpiece. I remember Edward Albee used to say that a great piece should move like a great classical piece of music. And this definitely does. So even though we, you know, we have those huge dips down, then we all have this arpeggio. We have this, this lightness that is just sort of infused in words. A friend of mine the other day, we were talking about how, you know, sometimes nightmares can be very funny when you go back and think about what happened. <laughs> so after the fact. Yeah, after the yeah. No. I just I just think they go hand in hand. And Forrest has done an amazing job of finding the air in this play. I mean, we have in rehearsals been belly laughing at some of the choices and exploration that we found, not only in the script, but through our actions as well. I think our audience is going to really be rolling in the aisles, perhaps uncomfortably, because they probably think they shouldn't be laughing at it, but it's there are some hilarious moments in this play. Our lead, Rebecca Kuhn, who's playing Violet, 
has found this childlike nature almost of Violet where she she is absolutely playing in the moment and it is mesmerizing to watch. Yes, I can't wait for our audiences to see this. All the actors are doing an exceptional job as someone who's worked a lot in this country. I'm very, very impressed with Atlanta and the talent that you have here. You touched upon the generations of dysfunction. How does this play unpack intergenerational conflict and trauma? Well, how most of it unpacks in reality. Uh, we just start yelling at each other. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a lot. I mean, a lot of it is masked with alcoholism and, you know, drug addiction. But the reality is sometimes these people are doing their very best to communicate and they're not. And then sometimes they're trying not to communicate and they actually are communicating. So it is a, again, the musicality to this piece is very, it's very upfront. It's like, you'll feel it. You'll hear it. There's so many times when Let's has just actors talking over each other and over each other and over each other, where you're trying to catch on to like one of these conversations. And the reality is the cacophony is what was built in. Mm. Forrest, ever since I was a teenager, I've been drawn to the work of Edward Albee. You mentioned him. You were no less than a mentee of his. And I just love that metaphor or that comparison to a great piece of classical music as well as your musical imagery with the cacophony of relatives talking over one another. Yeah, well, Mr. Albee was definitely a gift in my life. Like, uh, I don't think I would have the success that I, I, I have had to this date if it wasn't for Mr. Albee and his associates. And, you know, every day is an education. Like I said, it's a pleasure meeting you. It's incredible being in Atlanta. Uh, this is my first time working in Atlanta. So, uh, man, what a beautiful city. And your artist, I, again, I've worked with so many people around this country, and I'm just enamored with the talent that you have here. We are very proud of it as well. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with director Forrest Attaway, along with the actor and executive producer Michelle Neal, about the production of August Osage County at Dunwoody Stage Door Theater. Michelle, this production of August Osage County is in partnership with Greenlight Acting Studios and The Living Room. Please tell us about these organizations and how they came together. Greenlight Acting Studios is where I train, and it's owned by Erin Bethay. Um, you might remember Erin, she was the, the lead actress in Fireproof, and with her husband, Drew Waters, they have a production company here in Atlanta called Argentum Entertainment. And Aaron, whilst producing, recognized that there was a gap in the market, particularly in Northern Atlanta, where we could train together with professional working actors on techniques that are healthy for us psychologically. We don't, we really don't focus on emotional recall. 
we work on a technique called the Warner Lachlan technique. I have been close to Aaron for gosh, four years. And I last year in October went to New York to see Jeff Daniels and To Kill a Mockingbird. And I was so inspired. It was the first live theater I had seen in two years since I I was on stage when we went dark for COVID. And I was so inspired. And I spent the next day in the Dramatist bookstore. And I knew that Aaron was crazy about August Osage County. I think I bought 10 scripts that day, but I, I wanted to read the script again. And it hit me so personally because I'm a recovering alcoholic and the stories that was unfolding about generational trauma that started with the grandparents and kind of just rolled right down from what it was so closely tied to my own story. I was like, this, this is the piece that I really want to get on stage because it's so important with family trauma, addiction, mental health issues that we talk about these things and we air them and we get the information about recovery out there. So as storytellers, we have to authentically portray the lives of these individuals. But I was, I was so strongly committed to finding a partnership so that we could also talk about recovery and the life-changing benefits that that can bring. And I wanted to, I wanted it to be, as did Aaron, local you know, have a, a strong tie to the local community. And that's when we, we found Atlanta Recovery Place. And the work that these guys are doing in the local community is outstanding. I mean, not only are they providing rehabilitation services, they're providing psychiatric services, return to work, sober living housing, getting you into rehab, and they also never turn anyone away. So if someone doesn't have medical insurance, that doesn't prevent them from providing service. And the way that they do that is through working with partners and fundraising. And it was just the perfect partnership to really hit my strong objective, our objective of giving back to the community, giving back to the communities that we are performing in. So that's how we struck up the partnership with Cody Davis. It also it, this was just a, a coincidence, but my father, who passed during COVID, was also a, a recovering alcoholic, and he did a, a lot of work with them. So it just seemed like synchronicity. So you, the proceeds from this show will be donated? Ticket sales, yeah. These... So a portion of our ticket sales, as well as we are directly fundraising on behalf of Atlanta Recovery Place. We have a fundraiser site. We will be fundraising at the show as well. And then all of our concession proceeds are going directly to Atlanta Recovery Place. And that's going directly to a scholarship for one of their clients who can't afford the $30,000 bill of recovery because they don't have insurance. Mm. I read that this production itself takes care in presenting the themes of alcohol and substance abuse. How do you take a mindful approach to addressing those issues on stage? So what we did is um, we took the whole cast and crew over to Atlanta Recovery Place and 
we met with the owners and the clinicians and the therapists to, they're all in recovery as, as am I, of course, to share the reality of addiction, what that means for a person who is in active addiction and also what that means for their family. You know, some of the biggest consequences of alcoholism is the roll-on effect to our loved ones. And, you know, they they need healing and recovery too. And, and, and that Atlanta Recovery Place puts as much focus on healing and recovering for your family members, your loved ones, your immediate network, support network, because everyone needs to heal together, you know, because there's a lot of hurt that can happen when you're in active addiction and all you care about is where you're going to get your next fix. Forrest, you mentioned this production marks your Atlanta debut. Your resume is impressive. We've already said you were a mentee of Edward Albee, and you are an award-winning playwright yourself. Tracy Letts based much of this play on his own childhood and family dynamics. From your point of view as writer and director, how does Tracy Letts succeed in making the play relatable to families beyond his own? Well, I'm just going to keep digging back into that musicality bag. Like, he really does have this incredible, like when we talk about structure, you're gonna get me off on this tangent about architecture and how plays work and the Aristotle line. And I don't wanna do that. I wanna talk about- <laughs> Having <laughs> just dropped that, you don't wanna go there. <laughs> I wanna talk about this production and how excited I am about it and how excited I am to, I read this play 10 years ago. All right, here's a funny story. So Christian Stokes, who's a friend of mine, who's a, been a friend of mine for over 30 years, uh, we come from the same small hometown, was working here in Atlanta. And, and he was working he, with... He's playing Charlie Aiken right. in the play, by the way. But before that, he was working with Aaron and Michelle. And and uh, he calls me, calls me out of the blue. He's like, because he works in television and film uh, predominantly. And he calls me, he goes, my friends are thinking about directing this play in Atlanta. And he goes, you've worked everywhere. Do you know anyone in the Atlanta area who'd be willing to direct a, a play? And I was just like, man, I'm sure I do. What play is it? And he said, August Osage County. And I went, well, hold on now. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be interested in taking a shot at that. Like I said, this play has been living in the back of my mind for over a decade now. And I don't usually take on the helm of director. About once every four or five years, I'll take on a project, but the project has to be important to me. I have to have a solid idea, pretty much. I've already worked out the entire play before we even get into the first callback. <laughs> um, so when he said August Osage County, I said, uh, how much money? And then he told me that, and I said, I'll still do it. <laughs> Director Forrest Dataway with actor and executive producer Michelle Neal. August Osage County opens Wednesday, August 17th at Stage Door Theater in Dunwoody and runs through the 28th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, 
the celebrated pianist Laura Downs will tell us about her recent album Reflections, Scott Joplin Reconsidered. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Pianist Laura Downs has described ragtime as the overture to the music of the 20th century. The American composer Scott Joplin is often referred to as the king of ragtime, though he was classically trained and wrote other forms of music, including opera. Lara Downs' album of Scott Joplin's music is titled Reflections, Scott Joplin Reconsidered. She joins us now via Zoom to talk about the recording. Lara, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's so great to be here. So what inspired the Joplin recording? <laughs> memories. I think memories. I'm sure that many of your listeners can relate to the memory of playing Joplin's The Entertainer when we were little kids. Mm -hmm. For me, you know, by the time I played The Entertainer, I was six or seven. I was already a very serious little pianist. So playing <laughs> this fun little ragtime piece was a treat. It was something, you know, very different than the the Mozart and the Bach that was happening. And I mean, I, I remember seeing the movie, The Sting. My mom took us to see the movie. It was, a, it was a matinee at the old Castro Theater in San Francisco. And just, you know, entering a new sound world. What was a new sound world for me? And falling in love with it. And, you know, obviously through a, a child's experience. But that came back to me in a different way in recent years. The entertainer as heard on your new recording is in an unusual arrangement. because of the implications of that memory, of that childhood memory, I struggled a little bit with what to do with the entertainer. 
The other tunes were really easy for me to envision and I was clear about what I wanted to do with them and what I wanted them to say and what they said to me. And The Entertainer, you know, we know it so well. It's like so embedded in our sound memories. And so I was back and forth about different things and I didn't just want to do something like cute, you know, for the purpose of doing something cute. And then I realized that the whole, the, the answer to the puzzle was just staring me in the face. Joplin on the title page of that piece dedicates it to James Brown and his mandolin club. Different James Brown, not the R&B right. James Brown. <laughs> he wasn't but, born but yet. Some, <laughs> not born yet, but some James Brown at the in, you know turn of the century who had a mandolin club, which was a very popular thing at the time. And so I thought, whoa, what if I did this as a duet with mandolin? And so I called up this great mandolin player named Joe Brent, and we started talking about ideas. And then it turned out that the whole way that the tune is structured, you know, it has these little two-bar phrases. And so we just kind of tossed those back and forth between the two instruments. And it's it just brought new life to something that's, you know, again, so familiar. It does bring new life and, and such an interesting perspective because it's almost like a call to alertness, you know, mm-hmm. listen to this differently, which mm-hmm. I guess is part of what you were trying to achieve with reconsidered and the reconsideration of Scott Joplin's music. Lara, I'm intrigued with what you said about even your little six-year-old pianist self enjoying the sound world of hearing Joplin's music, hearing it in the soundtrack to The Sting. I remember hearing that music for the first time, and I am older than you. It was in the early 70s, I think maybe even before the movie, when Joshua Rifkin's album had come out. It was being played. He recorded the complete rags of Scott Joplin, as you know. And I was enthralled with this. It just transports us back to a time so specific that this style is indelibly linked with what was going on in that era. When you spoke about ragtime as the overture to the music of the 20th century, you write in your wonderful liner notes further explanation of that. Would you elaborate on why rag was the predecessor to everything that followed? Mm -hmm. So Joplin has this very interesting musical beginning where he's growing up in Texas, and this is just a few years after the abolition of slavery. You know, it's sort of a a new existence for black Americans. His father had been enslaved. His parents were both musical. And so the music that they know is, you know, coming from plantation life. They played the violin and the banjo. And so he's, this is the music in his home. At the same time, he's learning to play piano on 
pianos in the houses that his mother is cleaning. And so, you know, he's probably hearing the piano music that's being played in those homes, which is 19th century parlor music. And then by the time he's 11, he's taking music lessons from a music teacher in the town who happens to be a German Jewish immigrant. And this is, you know, classical music. So he has this foundation that's coming from two distinct places, European classical music and black American music that's coming out of the, you know, the rural South and the days of slavery. And those two things bring him to the turn of the 20th century when, you know, everything in America is shifting so fast. There's all these different streams of migration and all kinds of people are hearing other people's music for the first time. And I think that that speed and that kind of collision course of cultures is what allows ragtime to come into being because he's taking essentially a very polite European born tradition, kind of this 19th century, you know, parlor music sound. And what happens to it is you introduce the critical component of syncopation and it turns into something brand new. Um, that's why it's called ragtime. It came from the rag part of it came from ragged rhythms of, and, and this is coming out of the black tradition. And that happens really fast. And then ragtime blows up and becomes a national craze. And everyone in America is listening to ragtime. And at the same time, other things are happening. And there's this new sound coming out of New Orleans, which is called jazz. And so it's a very short window. It's a very short window into jazz and everything that comes after jazz. But without it, none of those things happen. Have you seen Ma Rainey's Black Bottom? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. We had the privilege yeah. of seeing it on Broadway in the mm. original production, but I loved the movie as well. And mm-hmm. something you write about comes through in the movie, just this rapid speed of these currents, how quickly one flows into the next and one form of music is passé. Mulroney's style had to give way to jazz. Ragtime had to give way to jazz. Ragtime was not just what Joplin was about. In fact, he devoted an enormous amount of time, emotion, and money to his opera, Tremonitia, which, like its creator, sadly did not receive proper recognition at the time it was written. Lara, in Atlanta, music lovers take special pride that the world premiere of the full opera was a joint production of the Morehouse College Music Department and our Atlanta Symphony Orchestra with conductor Robert Shaw. The music is so gorgeous. And you begin this new recording with the prelude to Tremonitia. Would you tell us about the selections from the opera that you include in Reflections? Yeah, and that for me is really connected again to the life story and to you know the truth of what Joplin's music is. Knowing where he comes from, knowing that this classical music stays at the heart of everything he's doing that through all the years of being the king of ragtime you know and innovating this new american genre and absolutely you know leading that movement 
he's also writing operas. You know, he does not let go of his origins. And what I wanted to do is to bookend the album with that music, because I think that once you hear the music from Trimanisha, and once you understand that this is a foundational part of his music making, you can't hear the rags in the same way. You can't hear them as, you know, something superficial or lighthearted or inconsequential. They're coming really from a deep place, a, a deep musical understanding and, and a broad musical vision. The album opens with this little snippet, really, from Act 3 of Trimanisha that I fashioned into a solo piano piece. beautiful writing beautiful writing and then the last track is the grand finale from his opera um, it's called a real slow drag and I wanted to kind of hand this music off to the next generation you know I think we're bringing back music from a hundred years ago and positioning it in the here and now but also sending it off on its way into the future so I asked the Brooklyn Youth Chorus to join me on that track and I just, I really, really love that that's what we end with is, I mean, you know, very literally the sound of the future in those young voices. This opera broke Scott Joplin, broke his spirit. He was in failing physical health, and he put all of his money into it. Would you talk a bit about the libretto as well? Yeah, and this is, this is an, another really clear outcome of that speed that we're talking about, the speed of the 20th century, because... He's ahead of his time with this opera, but really not by very much. You know, he's trying in 1911, he's in New York, he comes to New York to get the opera produced. In 1911, he does this read-through, which is the critical moment. He's invested all of his energy, all of his money, and he does this read-through in front of, you know, potential backers, and people literally walk out. Like, they're just not ready for this. 1911, 10 years later, Shuffle Along is on Broadway. The Harlem Renaissance is kicking off, you know, all kinds of things are possible that were not possible in 1911. His vision, his really clear vision was to write the first black American opera. And it is specifically, you know, the, the story is a black story. It's set in the rural South. It's not making any concessions. You know, it's saying, come with me into my experience and we're gonna make a grand European opera based on this. And I mean, you know, looking back, you can see why that wasn't 
possible at the time. I think Trimish is just about to have a revival. In fact, I just got an email this morning from my friend Damien Sneed. There's a new version of, of the opera happening and it's, it's being kind of re, well, reconsidered for the, <laughs> for the present day. But it's, it's heartbreaking to see how close he was and, and also just like how courageous he was. You know, this guy who's, who's, I mean, he has made a successful career. He's established him, himself as the king of ragtime, but he's saying, no, no, no. But I'm going to write an opera now, you know, and and in, not in a small way. I'm going to write this big opera, and yeah, just a little a little too soon. With this message of education as redemption, yes, and very much in the spirit of the time as well. Yes, can you tell us about the works on this recording that Scott Joplin wrote for? his wife. Ah, yes. Yeah, so he was not lucky in love, Mr. Joplin. He um, had a first marriage that ended because their infant daughter died and, you know, the marriage fell apart. And then some years later, he met this young woman named Freddie Alexander, fell madly in love with her. And he wrote a piece called The Chrysanthemum when he was courting her. dedicated to her on the title page and it's one of his really lovely pieces and interestingly it's one that really does go back to a 19th century sort of romanticism just beautiful and then they were married and she died 10 weeks after their wedding she caught a cold and um, you know complications from the cold and she died and he wrote Bethina during that period of mourning and Bethina it's a concert waltz it's truly just Oh, I mean, it's one of the most intimate and the most lyrical and sort of profound of his pieces. And if you know the context, if you know that story, it's it's really a heartbreaker of a piece of music. extraordinary musicians collaborating with you throughout your projects. Would you tell us about who sings on this recording, <laughs> the solo? Yeah, so this is a great story. So, and, and it's also an, an illustration of how much there is to find and to bring into the world. So I'm just, you know, doing my, my research, making sure that I'm finding everything I want to find of Joplin's. And I found this art song called A Picture of Her Face, which he wrote early on. It was one of his first published compositions. This life is very sad to me. A sorrow fills my heart. My story I will tell to you from 
I'm you know putting together these lists of, of things I want to do, and I just happened to be texting with my friend Will Liverman, who's a baritone, who at the time was in New York because he was starring in the opera Fire Shut Up in My Bones at the Met. And I think now now I remember the day that we were writing back and forth that night was the performance that they were going to film for the HD broadcast oh. you know that they do in movie theaters all over and so I was saying to Will are you nervous about this you know because they're like filming in your face you know while you're doing yeah it. And, and he said I, I don't even know anymore if I'm nervous like we're just this opera's you know we've just been we've just been doing so much with it and we were just kind of back and forth he said what are you up to and I said oh I'm going to the studio next week I'm doing this Joplin project and he's like oh I love Joplin and I said well did you know that he wrote a song and Will's like nah I didn't write any songs <laughs> I said I, I'm sending you this song right now and so then just so luckily we, we found a date down the road in a couple of weeks down the road where we can get together in the studio and record it and we had so much fun it's a beautiful little song very much a you know 19th century parlor song and will if you know will's voice and will's talent Stunning. will can do anything you know will grew up singing in the black church and he sings r&b and he writes his own material including a new opera that he's writing and obviously he sings opera like nobody's business. So we just kind of let the song filter through everything that we know how to do. And it just became this timeless, beautiful love song. And I'm just so happy that it's out in the world. Oh, it is just exquisite. And I won't forget this story, Lara. I love thinking about, oh my God. Goodness, all that goes into the production of those Met HD broadcasts gives <laughs> no meaning to production. And you're talking with Will and his delight in hearing about the song. And here, yes, you birthed it. Lara, I thought about something. I think it was the pianist Jonathan Biss once said about Robert Schumann and his tragic life and his mental illness, which we now know bipolarity. I mean, it, it could be controlled with medication, but it was a horror in his lifetime. And Jonathan Biss said there's something about Schumann that makes us want to take care of him. And I thought about that in terms of Scott Joplin and your recording. With reconsidering Scott Joplin, are you also restoring him to life? Oh, I hope so. I hope so. And I, I love that in, in the way that it reflects on Schumann's life and so many, so many artists who struggled in their time in different ways. And really, isn't that our responsibility? You know, we keep playing their notes over and over again. Don't we also have to dig under that surface and honor who they were and who they weren't, you know, who they weren't able to be because of their time and their circumstances. And I think imagine you know the same way that we can imagine a schumann living today you know with medication and 
awareness of mental health and, you know, just a different kind of a support system. And we can imagine Scott Joplin living today in a time when a black man, a brilliant artist, someone who could bring together all of these different ideas, he would have had such a different reality. He would have been able to do the things that he wanted to do. You know, probably Freddie wouldn't have died of a cold, you mm. know, just all of the things. And to put that possibility back into the notes, that's what I'm trying to do. Yes. The acclaimed pianist Laura Downs from our conversation recorded in March. More information about Reflections, Scott Joplin Reconsidered, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, City Lights producer Summer Evans takes us to the Queen's Ball, the Bridgerton-themed immersive experience at Pullman Yards. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for being here. If you have ever imagined attending a royal ball, well, you now have the opportunity right here in Atlanta. The Queen's Ball, a Bridgerton experience, is an immersive event where you get to dress in your best Regency-era outfit and be transported back to the early 19th century. City Lights producer Summer Evans went to the Queen's Ball in Pullman Yards and brought back this audio postcard. Bridgerton, the Netflix period drama that has captivated audiences since its premiere in 2020. With its diverse cast, never-ending scandals, gossip, and dazzling wardrobes, you are transported to London's high society. Netflix recently announced it has officially renewed its third season and filming is currently underway. The series is based off the Regency-era romance novels by Julie Quinn, with each season following the love story of a different Bridgerton sibling. If you have been daydreaming about attending the next lavish ball in Bridgerton, look no further. The Queen's Ball of Bridgerton Experience is an immersive occasion of Instagram-worthy backdrops, line dancing, and character performances. Upon entering the Pullman Yard space, you'll go through the tunnel that's outfitted with hundreds of purple wisteria flowers and the sounds of a serene garden. Tiaras, feather fans, and diamond necklaces are available for purchase when you walk in. The perfect accessory to add to any ball gown or lace dress. And attendees did not disappoint with their 19th century attire. Dressed in wigs, beaded dresses with cap sleeves, golden frocks, and lace gloves. Men dressed in dark colored waistcoats, Regency-styled pants, and Georgian top hats. 
We encourage people to dress in whichever fashion they feel most comfortable. However, there are a lot of people that do choose to come in Regency attire or formal wear um, or semi-formal. Um, but we really want people to come and have a good time. That was Isis Arias with live experiences at Netflix. Netflix and Fever, Shondaland's event company, have presented this ball together. One of the guests of the evening, Emily Armstrong, donned her never-before-worn prom dress due to COVID canceling her prom. She brought her mother, Sarah Armstrong, to the experience. I think we're just gonna go like this. Yeah, just right. for fun, right? Yeah. yeah. Really? But yeah. no, what fun? What fun to be able to do something this ornate? I think I feel like you know, just to to take a step back and go, oh wow, like people used to do this every day. I just always enjoy like the story of it and how different it is from the way we live now and how we've come from there, but also just like getting to kind of get to experience what it was then. I asked Emily which Bridgerton character she related to the most. Probably Eloise or Penelope. I feel like I've always been a very like, I don't know strong-willed is the right word, but like uh, <laughs> more of the um, break the status quo, don't do what's expected of you. I mean, like I'm a rule follower, don't get me after picking up a crafted cocktail like the Whistle Down and Dirty or a mocktail like Penelope's Lemonade, you can line up to get your photograph digitally painted while striking your most regal pose. One, two, three. Gorgeous. Easel three. Thank you. The original costumes from Bridgerton Season 1, crafted by modiste Genevieve Delacroix, of course, are on display throughout the space. Lady Whistledown's voice booms over the speakers to announce that the Queen has arrived. Attendees of the Queen's Ball get the opportunity to line up and demonstrate their best curtsy or bow before the Queen. This allows her to survey the crowd and see who will be her diamond of the evening. As anyone hoping to rise above their station will tell you, courage is the most important of any of the virtues. So, gather your wits and courage as you scurry forth to present your best bow or curtsy to Her Majesty. It is only the queen's eye that matters today, a glimmer of displeasure, and someone's value plummets to unthinkable depths. After your first impression with the queen, you can join the ballroom to watch the Duke and Duchess perform their intimate dance routine. In between performances, you are encouraged to take to the dance floor and learn the waltz and a variety of other line dances. The string quartet plays classical renditions of modern songs like Lizzo's Juice. As the evening comes to a close, the queen makes her final appearance to the middle of the dance floor to select her diamond. It appears the time has finally arrived for the Queen to find her diamond of the evening. Angela Burke, the diamond of the evening, spun around as gold flakes of confetti fell from above and the crowd cheered on.
The Queen's Ball Bridgerton Experience in Atlanta is in full swing through September 11th. That was City Lights producer Summer Evans at the Queen's Ball, a Bridgerton-themed experience at Pullman Yards. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the Emmy-winning producer, writer, and comedian Scott Aukerman stops by ahead of Wednesday's live Comedy Bang Bang show at the Tabernacle. Plus, we'll hear about the Actors Express production of Desire Under the Elms. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.